In the classic movie, the old movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And by the way, when I say that, if your response is, that's not an old movie, then I want you to know that means you are an old person. And there is no, there's no other way around that. There's just not. Because uh, I watched that movie for the first time in uh, the back seat of a Ford LTD station wagon at a drive-in theater. Uh, and do you, you know what kind of movies played in drive-in theaters? Old movies, that's right. So I think, because I raise your hand if you have seen a drive-in movie. Let's just test this theory. See, I think that makes me the youngest old person here. Uh, but in that movie, even if you've never seen it, you may be familiar with this scene where Indiana Jones, there's this, this giant chase scene, and and... Suddenly, Indiana Jones finds himself quartered by, cornered by one of the bad guys with this giant uh, curved Arabic sword, right? And the, he's like the Arabic version of a ninja, whatever that would be called. He's twirling this thing around. He's doing tricks with it. And he's laughing about what he's about to do to Indiana Jones with that sword. And if you've seen the movie or the scene... You know, what does Indiana Jones do while the guy's twirling it around? He just grabs his gun and shoots the guy. Because that guy broke the oldest rule in fighting. Never bring a knife to a gunfight. Right? Maybe you have felt in life like you brought a knife to a gunfight. Like maybe you started uh, some project where you had to dig and you went out with your shovel and before long you realize, like, I don't need a shovel. I need a backhoe. This is way too big of a job. I feel like I have brought a knife to a gunfight. Once when I was in college, we played basketball against a team who had a kid from Turkey who was seven feet four inches tall. He was just a massive human being. And during that game, of course, I wasn't guarding him for obvious reasons, and he wasn't guarding me, uh, but we ran this little block-to-block screen, and I didn't know the defense switched men. And I was being guarded by the seven-foot-four-inch Turk. I had no idea. I grabbed this ball. I turned to shoot a little jump hook like I had a million times, and I was staring about right there in the middle of the most Turk I've ever, anybody has ever seen. Suddenly, I felt like I had, I had brought a knife, to a gunfight. It was, it was overwhelming. Well, this morning in 1 Samuel, the Philistines are going to learn they've done something far worse. They, ha- they, have, they have brought a pagan god to a god fight. They brought an idol to a god fight. They've gotten themselves into a fracas of sorts with the god of the universe. And the only thing only thing they have is a statue. Where we pick up this morning, the, the, uh, the background, there's just been two great battles between two nations, Israel and Philistia. The Philistines have resoundly defeated Israel. But then they carried what's on the, on the screen here in this picture, the Ark of the Covenant, which was just a storage chest that held the Ten Commandments, the the two copies of the covenant between Israel and God, they carried that away as part of the spoils of war. Now, it should never have been out there. Israel shouldn't have carried it into battle like a 
uh, a lucky four-leaf clover or something. But they did, and now it's been stolen. And today, in this little five-verse passage, God is going to begin to teach the Philistines about the supremacy of Himself. See, in, in the Philistines' mind, in the ancient mind, here's what they thought just happened in those battles. They believed that, that their chief God defeated Israel's God. Our God beat up your God, and that's why we won the battle. Well, God is going to uh, show them how wrong they were in that assessment this week and next. We're just going to start this chapter. Um, God's going to show His supremacy. We're going to put that on hold because it... This is going to bring up another very important question that many of us have asked and many other people have asked too. We'll get there when we get there. Let's read first. This is all we're going to study today. Five verses, the first five out of 1 Samuel chapter 5, which reads this way. Now, the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they set him in his place again. Verse 4. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both of, this says palms of his hands, but it was all of his hands, were cut off on the threshold. Only the, the trunk of Dagon was left on the statue. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of the doorway to the temple of, the, of Dagon and Ashdod to this day at the time the author wrote those words. There's our passage. There's our story. Here's what happened. The, the, the Philistines took the ark as spoils of war. They, they carry it into one of their major cities. The, the Philistines had five major cities, and this was one of them. And they take it and put it in the temple to their god, uh, Dagon. Now, Dagon, this is not the only place he shows up in the Bible. And the Bible's not the only ancient text where this god shows up either. Dagon was worshipped all over the Middle East, into um, even Central Asia. Um, he was sort of a very popular God. He was called the Father of Gods. He's kind of, loosely, he's kind of the Middle East version of Zeus, right? The big one. The Father of Gods. He, he always has, looks like, he looks like a fish, but this, he was more of a dragon God. Uh, depending upon whose language you get him out of, you might see it spelled Dagan with two A's instead of the, of the O, but doesn't matter. Same God. He was very important to people's prosperity, supposedly. That's what they thought. And in many places, Philistia was no exception here, uh, Dagon was very important to military success. And that's why he shows up um, in this story the way he does. If you are familiar with the story of Samson, Near the end of the book of Judges, the Philistines finally are strong enough to, or crafty enough to, to capture Samson. This is the God that gets credit for them being able to 
capture Samson. And so that's, that's where the Ark of the Covenant, that gold-plated storage chest, goes. And, and they, they take this Ark in there and set it beside Dagon. And again, in their, in their minds, here's what they are picturing. Because you, Dagon, helped us defeat Israel, we have brought the biggest prize, the symbol of their God, and we set it in here beside you. And that symbolized that now... Their God, Yahweh, is going to be a servant of Dagon the way the, the, the Israelites are going to be servants to the Philistines. That's what's being pictured. That's what they think is, is going on. Well, early the next morning, whatever Philistines who live in Ashdod uh, were the first up to go into the temple, they walk in and they look at the, the statue, that idol, and at first it has its face down on the floor of the little temple. The way our author writes it is significant. He writes it the way I think God wanted the Philistines to understand what was going on. He says, as they go in there, there was Dagon. He had fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. See, it's... it's it's written that the statue did this himself. I know it's an inanimate object. And he didn't. But God is preaching in this story. What God wants the Philistines to understand is, I, I won't be serving your, your fake God. Everyone, one, one day or another, will serve me. And so God forces the statue on its face before the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God, at least in this story. The last part of verse 3 is supposed to be comical. It's the funny line. So the people that work at the temple there, they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Here's why that's funny. They worship a God who can't even stand up if he falls down. Right? He has, he's fallen and he can't get up. What, what kind of God are they worshiping? Well, it's a weak one because it's a made up one. It, it's powerless. There's nothing there and it gets worse. The next morning when they go in, not only is Dagon back on his face, but he hasn't just been forced to bow in subservience to Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's been executed. That's what this is a picture of. This is a brutal, military, Middle Eastern execution. His hands have been cut off, and he's been decapitated. It doesn't take a lot of interpretation to see what God's trying to get across. It happened right there on the threshold, the doorway of his inner sanctum, this, this Dagon God, little G. That, that's how Yahweh demonstrates to the Philistines his supremacy over even the false god called the father of all gods around that area of the world. There's a great contrast here. Israel's God, who is our God. 
doesn't need anyone to stand him back up, mainly because he would never fall over to begin with. Yahweh, our God, doesn't need anyone to fight on his behalf. Doesn't need anything from people at all. And they've missed this. God may have allowed the Ark of the Covenant, and this is a difference too, that's not God. It's a box. Even Israel didn't believe that was God. God may have allowed Israel the freedom to make a really bad decision and carry that ark like it was a box o magic out onto the battlefield thinking God will make us win if we carry this out there. God allowed them the freedom to do that. God allowed the Philistines to capture that box, but God has not been taken prisoner. He's doing just fine. If anything, God has infiltrated enemy lines, so to speak. Come back next week and we'll see God is going to get that box back to Israel all by Himself. He doesn't need any help. He's going to make the Philistines deliver it. The contrast here is between the real God and every other false God. And with every other false God, the relationship between people and God is a quid pro quo relationship. You know what I mean by quid pro quo? Quid pro quo is Latin, and I don't, I forgot to look up what that means. But here's what quid pro quo means. You do something for me expecting that I will in some way repay you later. It's expecting something in return. That's quid pro quo. Every God but God. Every God, little g. Every religious system of biblical Christianity is one of quid pro quo. We, the gods are out there. We have to figure out what they want, what they need, and if we do that well enough, we can expect them to do for us something in return. That's what this is. See, their God has done something for them. So they bring the best spoils of war back and give it to Him. And then it will be His turn to do something again for them. And this is not just the ancient world. Uh, in fact, even the literal statue worship quid pro quo is, is, is not dead. Uh, when we were in... Our family was in Nashville years ago. We went to a Hindu temple, and it was filled with idols, statues that were gods, little g. We had a really nice uh, lady that was our uh, was kind of the director of the temple, and she gave us a tour and explained what all the gods did. And she explained that, that the gods of the Hindu pantheon, they can't feed themselves. And I can't even say that without laughing, but that's true. They, they can do almost anything, but they can't feed themselves. They need human food. They can't procure that on their own. So people would come and bring fruit. At least they want them to be healthy, I guess. It was mostly bananas. And they would bring and set bananas up in the little hands of the idol. And then whatever that God was in charge of in the spiritual world would repay that gift uh, somehow later. It's just quid pro quo. 
every religion but one is. How do we get God to do for us? Look, there's a lot of people who think Christianity works that way. It doesn't. Do you know why? Because our God doesn't need anything we could provide. I mean, it is silly when you think of it. How could Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who spoke everything into existence from nothing, how could he need anything to begin with? And if he did, how could we provide for something he couldn't get on his own? There's no quid pro quo. Now, like we've been saying, God wants us. He desires to be with people. Our sin is what separates us from that God, but He desires to be with people, but we can only meet that God. We can only be in a relationship with that God through the way He allows Himself to be approached. That, that's what God is teaching in this whole section of the book of 1 Samuel where the Ark of the Covenant is the main character I said last week. Really, God's the main character. Here's what he's been teaching. There's one God, and we can't get God on our side. You know that? We cannot get God on our side. A lot of religion is trying to figure out, how do I get this God or that God or those gods or the universe on my side? The Bible teaches over and over and over and over this truth. God is on God's side. Now, in His grace and His mercy, He allows us to join Him on His side, but we cannot coerce God to be on ours. Wasn't that what Israel was doing? How do we, what do we do with this magic box to make God be on our side? God's not on our side. God's on God's side. And the fact that God allows us to join Him on His side is not because that's His need. It's because it's our greatest need. And God, just in His grace and mercy, grace meaning He gives us way more than we deserve, and mercy meaning He refuses, He holds back the punishment we do deserve, He allows us to join Him on His side. But we have to approach God on God's terms. He can't be manipulated. He can't be coerced because he has no needs. And in this story, God is preaching to the Philistines that truth. This isn't God being a big meanie and he executed their statue. Oh man, how does, who does he think he is? No, it's God in His grace infiltrating their religious system and showing them they're barking up the wrong spiritual tree. This is, this is an incredible act of God's grace. He's not there trying to make them feel bad. He's there trying to help them to reconsider that they've been deceived by spiritual things that can't deliver. They haven't just been deceived by the statue. 
They've been deceived by the search for self, for the things that God can give. That's what will make me happy. Not God Himself, but God's stuff. Over and over and over, this truth is taught throughout Scripture. We know now, 3,000 years after this story, we know what all of the Scripture pointed to. The way God allows us to access like His side is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay? God allowed Himself to be accessed by sinful people. That's the good news. There is a way. That way is only through Jesus, through Jesus Christ. He went to the cross under the wrath of God. I deserve for my sin. You deserve for yours. And the best way I can spend my life is trusting that that is all I need to be restored into a relationship with Him and then pursuing the God that saved me, not trying to figure out how to get Him on my side to help me do the things I want to do. That's the lesson from the passage. But I think this brings up a really important question that is asked all the time still today. This is a very clear sort of picture of uh, Israel's religion versus the rest of the world's religion. This is like there's only one God and you guys are following the wrong one. That reminds me of this question I I get asked still, how do you know that the God you're telling people to follow is the real God? How do you know that the God of the Bible is the real God? How do you know if there's, that there is only one way? And how do you know you have the right way? Isn't it arrogant to think that way? This passage reminds me, because that's what God was preaching to the Philistines, and it's still something we need to preach uh, to ourselves as uh, Gentile former pagans also. So how do you answer that question? How do we know that there is only one God, there is only one way, and that we have the right one? And it isn't an arrogant to feel that way. That's what we're going to be answering. But we've got to start, we've got to back up before we can get to an answer there. I think we have to start here. How do we know that the God of the Bible is the one true God? Well, first, we have to answer this question. Do you believe there is a God? Leaving Christianity out of it, do you believe there is a God out there somewhere, a creator? I couldn't, we have more than enough evidence to know there has to be something out there, some created force that made this thing. It defies all logic to believe otherwise. Here's why. Um, it's, it's just because of how complex and ordered the universe is. The universe is so incredibly complex and it's so predictable and it acts in such an orderly fashion that that complexity and order couldn't have come from an accident of chaos. There's just no way. The old... Uh, sort of parable about this. Let's say you were in some 
you know, deserted island, some deep dark jungle, on some glacier, some place almost no people had ever walked before. You're just exploring, and as you're walking along, you stumble upon some complex something. A computer, a tablet, a drone. Well, I don't care what it is. If you saw it laying there, you're like, wow, what is that doing here? That's really surprising that that is here at all. You might be surprised that it's there, but you would never just assume that all of the right elements and, and molecules uh, and the wind and the barometric pressure were just perfect, that everything came together and that computer just kind of happened out of chance on its own. You would never assume that. You would assume something made that. Something or someone made that. I don't know how it got here, but it didn't just get here. Someone made it. They dropped it out of their backpack. It fell out of the plane. I don't know. When we try to believe that this universe just got here on its own, that's what we're doing. Because our world and our universe is infinitely more complex than anything human beings have ever put together. I thought of just one illustration about the complexity of our universe. I want to share with you to make you think about that. Scientists have mapped out the human genome. Uh, it took them 13, once they realized how they could do it, the human genome, this, this is just the programming in our cells that makes humans humans. Right? Uh, dogs have a different genome. Uh, grass has a different genome. Right? The human uh, genome is, is mapped out with pairs of letters, A's and T's and C's. I know I'm giving you flashbacks to science class. I'm sorry about that, some of you. But and all of these, it's the blueprint, it's the coding, it's the programming in our cells that makes us humans. Here's how complex it is. You know how many pairs of letters, those letters represent little tiny particles that, that go together that make our chromosomes, our DNA, the human genome. You know how many pairs of letters are in that human genome? Here's why it took them 13 years to map it out. Because there's 6.4 billion letters in that. How much is that? Well, depending upon what version of the Bible you may have, not the study notes part, just the Bible part, there are between 3 and 3.5 three and million letters in your Bible. Maybe some of you have undertook the task of reading the Bible through in a year. And a few fewer of you have actually completed that task of reading through the Bible. It's a decent amount of reading every day for a year, right? That's to get through three and a half million letters. Well, if the Bible had 6.4 billion letters in it, to read at the same pace, just to read the letters in the human genome, you would have had to start reading when Jesus was a boy 2,000 years ago and have read every single day for 2,000 years. And listen, had you completed that task, all you would have done is read the genetic makeup of one nucleus of one cell in one body. You have all of that information in every single cell in your body. 
And every other animal has a separate, unique code in every cell in its body. It's just so incredibly complex. It's so complex that the man who directed that project, the Human Genome Project, the last man, there were several because it took 13 years to, to get all those letters mapped out. His name is Dr. Francis Collins. He's still one of the leading geneticists in the entire world. And he became, he converted from atheism to Christianity by mapping out the human genome. Because he came to realize, in spite of my training and what I want to be true, there is simply no way that all of this just infinitely minuscule, fragile complexity happened by chance, self-created out of chaos. So, how do we know the God of the Bible is the real God? Well, we don't yet. But I think we have to admit there's a, there's a creator out there somewhere. Something or someone had to create all of this. If we get that far, if we admit that to ourselves, then second, because there is a creator out there, I am accountable to whatever made me. I'm accountable. We are accountable to the one who created all of this. If, if I make something in my garage, I can do with it whatever I want. If I make a birdhouse out of scrap wood in my garage, if I want to put it behind the wheel of Old Blue and back over it, I can. You may not understand, but it's my birdhouse. Right? God can do what He wants with this world. It's His. If there's a God out there, right? If He made it, it's His. So if there's a God out there, we better figure out who He is and what He expects from us. There's no bigger need than to know who that God is and what He needs. And here's where we go wrong. This is the Apostle Paul's argument in the first uh, section of the body of the letter of, to the Romans, the book of Romans. Paul says, we have more than enough evidence to know there's a God out there somewhere. We know that. That's not enough to save us. But we know there's a God out there. And then he said this, although they, meaning ancient peoples, although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Here's what Paul's saying. If we're honest with ourselves, we know there has to be a God. If we get that far, since there is a God, I better figure out who He is and what He wants. That's the smartest thing we can do, but we don't want to do the smart thing. Why would I want to spend my whole life living for God when I can spend my whole life living for me? We buy not just a lie, we buy the lie and we make a terrible exchange. Here's the lie. The lie is there's a better way to spend my life than pursuing the God who made me. That's the lie. And the exchange is this. Instead of 
living my life to, for what glorifies and what pleases God, I exchange that for chasing his stuff that I think will make me happy. In the ancient world, they built statues and idols and they bowed down. But do you know what was behind those things? They had a God that they, would, they think would make them more money, have better harvests, God that would make people fall in love with them and adore them, a God that would make them fertile, a God that would do this, a God that would do that. That's what people were chasing because we were spending our lives chasing us. See, the truth is, if there's a God out there, and there is, we're accountable to Him, and the best way I can spend my life is in the pursuit of that God, finding out how He allows Himself to be accessed and pursuing that. Okay, maybe you're with me that far. There has to be a God. There just does. If there is, we're accountable to Him. And then finally, well, not really finally, it's the first time I'll say finally, all religions cannot be different paths toward that same God. Because we get one and two, we can kind of get to. But then here's where we say, but wait a minute, Maxwell, isn't it arrogant for you to say you know the only way to get to that God? Well, it seems like it. It seems fair. It seems nice to say, well, this God must have created these different religions that will all lead to Him. And I'm here to tell you that can't be true. It just can't. Here's how I know. First, they don't all claim to even head toward the same place. Some religions claim to head toward something like heaven or paradise. There are others that think the best you can do is just be reincarnated as something better next time. That's not even the same goal. There are others, maybe I'll just meld into the energy of the universe. That's not heaven. So they don't have the same goal. And then secondly, they can't all be true because they all self, they, they contradict one another. It might sound offensive for me to say Christianity is the only way, but I want you to know this religion is not the only one that claims that. They all do. They all do. Christianity does give some claims of exclusivity. I'm going to show you a couple. This is Jesus himself. Jesus said toward the end of his life, I am the way, the only way to the Father. I am the truth, the only truth from the Father. And not just, I will show you how you can find life I am life. Jesus said, life is in me. And then he said, nobody gets where we want to go. Heaven is what we call it. Any other way except through me. Later, Jesus said, eternal life is just getting to know me. That's what Jesus said eternal life is. This is eternal life. That people get to know you, God the Father, and me, Jesus the Christ whom you sent. Elsewhere, God, when God gave Himself a Hebrew name, He called Himself I Am. Yahweh just means I Am. It's the be verb. I Am. He named Himself that 
as a contrast between himself and every other so-called God. I am, they am not. They ain't. I exist. The rest don't. And then Jesus called himself, I am. One time, Jesus' disciples said, hey, Jesus, will you show us the Father? You know what his answer was? If you've seen, if you've seen me, you've seen him. Here's why I explain that to you. If you take that information to your friend who is a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a whatever, and say, hey, we all believe the same things. We're all going the same place. Eternal life is just getting to know Jesus. What will they tell you? They'll say, no. You know why? Because they have an exclusive path toward their idea of heaven. They can't all be true. They just can't. They absolutely can't. Because they all make claims of exclusivity. Now, where does that leave us? There has to be a God. If there is a God, we're accountable to that God. We better figure out how to access that God in the way He's allowed Himself to be accessed and know every religion can't be a different path toward the same God. They just can't. Now, I'd love to go to the next slide and show you a picture that proves to you that the God of the Bible is the only one. I can give you more information. For time's sake, I can't. I can give you predictive prophecy. I can give you proof that, he, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Uh, like evidence that demands a verdict. But ultimately, God said the path to Him comes through something called faith. And I am convinced most people that, that say, oh, no, they're all paths lead to the same place. Their real hang-up is in number one and number two. See, my, my real hang-up was not that I didn't believe in God. My real hang-up was not uh, that I was an atheist. My real hang-up is I didn't want to answer to God. I didn't want to believe I would be accountable to God. My real hang-up was I wanted to do my thing and have God tell me I was good enough at the end. Folks, there is, there is some religious truth somewhere. I am convinced that it's here. I want to challenge you to, to challenge this book and its veracity. Because it has nothing to hide. I want to visit with you more about why I believe this one's the real one. But I think for most of us, our bigger problem before we believe is not we think Christianity is too arrogant. It is, I don't want to believe in anything that tells me what to do. Because I got stuff I want to do. I'm so busy chasing the stuff God made, I ain't got time to chase the one who made it. The lie is, there's something better for me in this world than the God who made the stuff in the world. And the truth is, there's only one way to gain access to that God, and I am more than convinced. 
And this is what makes biblical Christianity unique. It's not a system of rules sent by a distant God to tell people how to behave good enough and maybe he'll let them in or made him, make them be uh, um, born over again as something better next time. Our God is the only one that said, I came to the world you broke and I did everything you need to save you from what you caused to bring you to live with me. And then if that's true, and it is, if that's true, there is no better way to spend a life. It just, that gives us access back to stopping quitting believing the lie and undo that exchange. It gives us access to living a life that will please my God. I will mess it up. I'll confess that. I'll run back to Him. But in the pursuit of the Creator. That's what God has allowed through His Son, Jesus Christ. Pray with me and we will. Father God, uh, thank You that You... um, infiltrated the enemy lines of the Philistines and showed yourself to be the one true God. You're still doing that 3,000 years later. But the enemy ranks aren't in Philistia. They're right here in our hearts. Because we are the ones who have been deceived. We are the ones that think true happiness can be found if I ignore God and live my life for me. God, I pray you would topple the idols of our hearts. You would cut the hands and the heads off of what we pursue that is so much less than you. God, speak to our hearts. Let us know. Comfort us. You you want to give us more, not less. You want to give us more joy, not more frustration. Help us to believe there's nothing better than pursuing the God who created us and help us to understand the only way we can do that is through faith and discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you and we pray all those things in Jesus' name. Amen.